On April 17, 2011, lecture discussion number special request 7, uh, which is where we are. We're, um, we're deviated, as most of you know, out of Romans, and we're doing these special request sermons. And uh, Or more specifically, this is Judges 19, 20, and 21. I have to start out by saying to those of you who listen to me uh, on the Internet that we're still having microphone technical problems, etc., and we're doing the best we can. So uh, if this sounds a little uh, different, uh, then that's because uh, we're dealing with it, struggling along. And yes, yes, I know, and I do remember saying that I was likely concluding Judges 19, 20, 21 last week, regardless where we ended up, figuring that, uh, that I would have, or we would have gotten somewhat close to the finish line, at least within sight of it. But uh, we didn't, or I didn't. We have many miles to go. So I was left with the conflict of whether or not to abandon it and go back to Romans. Uh, and uh, as I said, I would. And, and as I said last Sunday, by the way, which would be special request lecture number six for those of you who are following along on the Internet. And let me just let me just um, take a little deviation here. There's a remarkable number, as you know, following us, and the largest group now appears to be in Australia, of all places. It's pretty amazing. And I have been following it as best I can to see what's going on. Actually, Dave has been doing most of that. But, uh, it's, it's extraordinary. And so we're trying to make as much effort as we can to include all you folks in Australia and Canada and uh, throughout the British uh, United Kingdom. But to go back to this... We have only, I said this last week, we've actually only accomplished the basics of Judges 19, 20, 21. Our list to date neglects uh, the list that's in your bulletin, the list that's on the board here. It's a partial list, but it neglects the most difficult aspects of the passage. So to reward that, the very tough sledding is yet to begin. I've left it out, not on purpose, it just as an order to it. The tough sledding is now starting, and that's why I decided to go ahead and keep going through it. Because Judges 21 is the solution. It made it pretty hard to stop here and not complete the solution. And then there's, of course, 1 Samuel 11 and 1 Samuel 31 that have to be added in. We have picked so far the low-hanging fruit. And as I said, it would be unfortunate to quit before we address uh, Judges 21. Judges 21 solves for the deep Bible student the Christology of Judges 19:20. What do I mean by the Christology? Judges 21 tells you where Christ is in all of this. It's an extraordinary story. I have the murder of a woman. I have her cut into pieces. I have a war. Where is Christ in that? Well, Judges 21 tells you how this fits together, if you will. Some of you may have read ahead, and you know that 1 Samuel 11 is the Old Testament complement, or the companion, if you will, to Judges 19. In other words, I cannot read Judges 19 unless I read 1 Samuel 11. How many of you have read 1 Samuel 11 and done your comparison already? Yay, one. Okay, maybe two. But you can't. You can't neglect the two of them. And so it's very important that we get to 1 Samuel 11. Because in 1 Samuel 11, once again, I have what? What do I have in 1 Samuel 11? I have the cutting of, the cutting and the distribution of pieces. The sending, I got something cut into pieces. In this case, it's oxen. 
but I have oxen cut up and those pieces uh, sent throughout Israel. And, and that happened many years later from the first occasion in Judges 19. And obviously this must be addressed and added in and mixed together, especially because it's Saul of Gebeah, a Benjamite, who cuts the oxen into pieces and sends them out and gathers an army. And the army gathers and a battle is fought. Who do you think is there? Sons of Belial are there. The right eyes, this is very important to know because there's a compliment in the New Testament. The right eyes, the, the king that has, that has engulfed the city, and we'll get to that in a minute, and he is going to put it under siege, they come out and say to him, listen, we don't want to be under siege. We're going to send away for help. If we don't get the help, Then we'll surrender to you. And he says, when you surrender to me, I'm going to take a spoon. It's really a knife. And I'm going to stick it in. I'm going to cut your right eyes out. Why is that important for you to know? Where's the compliment in the New Testament to that? Every time, how many blind men did Christ heal? And you know, they, a lot of them, they were soldiers. And they were captured in the field of battle by the Assyrians or the Romans or whoever they might have captured them. But mostly they were, uh, they were Israelite soldiers that were blind and their eyes had been cut out with this spoon-like knife. They had no eyes. How do you heal a man with no eyes? What do you got to do? You got to make an eye. How do you make an eye? Well, he's God. It's pretty easy. But he went, he made sure everybody knew he made an eye. He could have made it instantly, but he made, made sure you could all see him make the eye. What did he do? He spit in the mud. And he made an eye. And he stuck it in the eye socket where there wasn't one. That's what he did. Is that happening at these healing services? No, it ain't. There's no traveling healer in his tent and his tricks and his microphones and his listening devices. Spitting into mud and making eyes. That's the difference between the real and the counterfeit. Lots of counterfeit out there. Why do they do it? Why do they run around and they pretend they heal people? Why do they do it? It's a circus act. It's mostly tricks. It's adrenaline. It's, it's endorphin release. It's all physiological. Why do they do it? Because they make a lot of money doing it. How come? Because they're betting on something. What are they betting on? People in the church are stupid. How's that working for them? Really good. They're driving nice cars. They've got seven, eight airplanes. And it doesn't matter how many times you expose them as charlatans. They still attract huge crowds. How can that be? How can that happen in the church? Keeps happening. In this age of video cameras and computers, you'd think it wouldn't be, but it does. People like to be fooled. Anyway. This army gathers. They're going to cut the eyes out of everybody, the right eye. Why are they going to cut the right eye out? Could have cut the left eye out, but they're going to cut the right eye out because you used to hold a shield and you would cover your face like this and you would look around it. And if they took your right eye out, you weren't able to, to be a soldier. So they were going to capture this city. They would make sure that no one could be a soldier. They could all be slaves. And they were going to take it over. And the people in that city said, no, give us seven days. If we don't have somebody come and fight for us in seven days, we'll surrender. And that will save you a long siege. 
And the guy that was surrounding them, the king, the enemy, if you will, and we'll get to who he was and what he's doing later. But he makes the decision, yeah, I'll go ahead and take a seven-day deal. But when I say seven, what do you think? Why seven? Must be a what? Must be a Passover pattern again. But he's confident that they can't raise an army in seven days. But they do. They go to Gebeah. What happened in Gebeah? One of the most evil acts that ever in all of Scripture happens there. And they go there and they find a Benjamite. That's amazing because when we last left, left off, how many Benjamites did I have? Oh, I had 600. And they find a, a Benjamite in Gebeah who is willing to fight for them. And what he does is he cuts an ox into pieces. So can you imagine getting that again? Here you are, hundreds of years later, you get a bloody thing in the mail, for lack of a better term again, from a Benjamite in Gebeah of all places. It had to freak them out. But this time it's different. This time it's not human. It's an oxen. And so the Israelite army gathers and they fight this battle against this sieging army that comes. And the sons of Belial are there again. And there's seven days involved. And that's First Samuel 11. And it might sound like Judges 19 because it's designed to sound like Judges 19. It is not coincidental. And so they're the companions to one another. And hopefully you'll see the pieces fitting together as we push through all of that, which is why I'm keeping to go here. That should tell you that I've decided to continue on, at least enough that I can put a, a, a small little ribbon on it. Not a big ribbon, a small little ribbon. And that, but next week, what have I got to do? And I've got to stop next week to do the special feast day of First Fruits Lecture. And because that's sure to be a seeker-sensitive, fuzzy-wuzzy crowd-pleaser. Balloons and juggling, I'm thinking juggling this year. Or not. Probably not. Probably just as brutal as this, huh? And then May 1st, we'll return to Judges in 1 Samuel 11 and 1 Samuel 31. And all of that is a circular path. I've just led you on one great big circle, haven't I? And we're going back to King David at 2 Samuel 11 and 12, and King Saul at 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel 28. And what's at 1 Samuel, I'm sorry, what is 2 Samuel 11 and 12? We've gone all this way, haven't we? We started out at 2 Samuel 11 and 12. How come we started out at 2 Samuel 11 and 12 when we're in a study of the book of Romans? How'd we do it? What happened? Because we had to deal with Romans 3, why David wrote his confession and why Paul put it there. So what was David confessing about? He, confessing about? he was confessing about the raping or the taking of Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. That's 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And then Nathan's, the prophet Nathan's subsequent parable and the death of the child born as a substitute for David, for David's sin. So that's 2 Samuel 11. And we have to compare that and we have to, its companion is King Saul at 1 Samuel 15 and 1 Samuel 28. So you can't study Bathsheba without studying why Saul refused to kill Agag of the Amalekites. Now Saul did two things, didn't he? He refused to kill Agag of the Amalekites and he refused, I'm sorry, he decided that he wanted to be not only a king, but he would perform a priestly function and that's 1 Samuel 13. And because of those two, his kingdom, if you will, his genetic line would cease. He would not be the line through whom the Messiah would come. The Messiah would come through David. So I have King David's taking of Bathsheba, and I have to 
put it side by side with the Witch of Endor event. And I mentioned those together again on purpose to remind you that you've got to look at them at the same time. Bathsheba equals the Witch of Endor. It's the same story, sort of. And I did that already, and I put that on the board, and of course the, the uh, microphone failed again that day, and I have to repeat it as well, and I will. It's something that we've wrestled with for so long, and I don't know what to do. We try to keep our redundancies, and our redundancies failed, and that's what happened in that day. So hopefully uh, we can fix that too. Lots of things to fix. Let me repeat it. King David taking and raping Bathsheba is equal... Sorda, its companion, is King Saul seeking out the witch of Endor. They fit together and they eventually get us to Romans chapter 3, where the words are written by Paul, quoted from David in the Psalms, made, made inspired by the Holy Spirit to be in chapter 3 of Romans. None are righteous, none seek after God, none do good, none understand, no, not one have to know that. How many times I deal with somebody telling me how they're busily earning their way to heaven. I, if I had a dollar for it, I'd have the nicest, I'd, I'd have a, I'd have Carnegie Hall here for a sound system. Do not forget that. None do good. None are righteous. No, not one. <coughs> okay. Last week, I was unable to get the list on the board. And this week, I'm a little scared to put it on the board to take the time to do it because I'm, I'm, I was worried that uh, we wouldn't hear me. So I'm kind of scared to walk away from this microphone, being it's the only one. And everyone was forced to imagine how it looked. And that's sort of pretty much how the Internet folks do. And so I'm going to try to get it into the record again today. And I need to take as much time as possible to get it into the record before we go on to the more difficult portion of this uh, lecture, Judges 21. Now, what are we supposed to remember as I'm going to read this? Now, you should have in your bulletin, you should have this 40-element list. What is this 40-element list about? Why do I have it? Not just to make Amanda happy. Why do I have the 40-element list? What's the point of it? What's that? Yeah, you're supposed to be putting everything together. There are a bunch of pieces. You've got 40 pieces. What do the 40 pieces show you when you're done? Think of it as a jigsaw puzzle. You have 40 pieces to put together. What does the pieces put? What do you get when you get them? Get them all together. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you didn't hear him, he said you get more pieces. Uh, that's absolutely correct, by the way. But uh, what you get, you're trying to, this is your, your John 5.39 moment. The purpose of all scripture, certainly the purpose of the Old Testament, it testifies of Jesus Christ always. The Old Testament always testifies of Jesus Christ. And we're commanded to figure out how it's doing it. We're commanded to find Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. You disobey that at your peril. 
That's a direct order. Think of yourself in God's army, if you will. And the commander of the army, Jesus Christ, tells you your commandment is to find him, find him in the Old Testament. And so you disobey a direct order at your own peril. You'll have issues here and you'll have issues there in front of the throne. People come to me all the time and they say to me, I'm having a horrible life. And I go, well... In fact, one of my favorite jokes now is somebody told me that they did not intend to have a mediocre life. And I just thought, that is really, really funny. That's as funny as anything I've ever heard. That's hysterically funny. Uh, I, I don't think I've stopped laughing at that since I heard it. But on the other side, I have people come to me and they tell me how bad their life is. And what's the first question I ask them? Can you find Jesus Christ in the Old Testament? Because if you disobey that commandment and you're not interested in it, you disobey that order, well, then I'm not surprised that you have a difficult life. Therefore, try to find Christ on these 40 elements. And this is an incomplete list. Don't think otherwise. There's many others that I could have put on there. We just tried to grab the most obvious, I think. And then once you have found the picture of Christ in Judges 19, 20, 21, and 1 Samuel 11, then what should you do? You've got your picture. You put your 40 pieces together, if you want to call them 40 pieces, and you're now hunting more pieces. But what should you do once you've pretty well solved Judges 19, 20, and 21 as best you can in this world, in this life? What do you do next? You go and find out where is it in the New Testament, and you put the New Testament together with the Old Testament. And I told you last week, the New Testament, the complement, the companion, or the, or the reciprocal, if you will, is Matthew 4 and Matthew 26, 36 through 46, which is the testing of Christ over the solution to sin, whether or not there is a solution to sin. Could God solve the man's free will? And, and sin and accountability and still have salvation, could that be solved? And then, of course, Gethsemane, where Christ is saying, let this cup pass, because what's in the cup? Sin is in the cup. Whose sin is in the cup? The sin of the saved. Why would Christ want the sin of the saved to pass? Hey, once you understand the reason that he would want that, what, what he would call his will, Versus the will of the Father. And you go back to Judges 19, 20, 21. You figure it all out and off you go having a more productive life. Are you going to have a happy life? What are you going to have? You're going to have peace. He doesn't promise you happy. Sorry. Not really. Fake sorry, huh? He doesn't promise you. Riches and happiness and in the sense that worldly riches and worldly happiness. He promises you the ability to deal with it and he promises you peace and he promises you everlasting life and reconciliation with him. But anyway, if you know that Matthew 4 and Matthew 26 or Gethsemane equals Judges 19, now you know that Judges 19, 20, and 21 equals Genesis 15. So I'm often about to prove that today and May the 1st. So anyway, the incomplete essential so far list of Judges 19, 20, 21 that's in your bulletin and most of it on the board. I'm going to recap it. I'm going to repeat it. I've got to verbally put it in the record as best I can. 
as both a reminder and get it firmly established because of our myriad of technical difficulties and challenges. So read along. I'll expound on it as I go. And you do not have to take the baby. You do not. You, you can go, but you have to leave the baby. Here we are, item number one. In those days, this is how it starts. And you've heard me say it a couple of times now um, that it begins with this and it ends with this. This is the bookends of uh, the entire passage. And there, in those days, no king in the land. That, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I believe, of course, that's a good thing. Because what's in the land? If there is no king, what's there? The Ark of the Covenant is there. That means the Shekinah glory, the presence of God is there. Item number two, we start with this story about a Levite priest who's also called Master. I have a Levite priest, Master. And he has a wife. I put a woman slash wife, obviously, but it's a woman. She's called woman. She's called wife. Some some, uh, translations will call her a concubine. I I think that's a stretch. The ancient writings uh, seem to to go a different direction there, so I always stick with the woman-wife aspect of it. But we know for sure that she despises her husband, and she rejects him, and she leaves him. So I have a priest-master who has a wife who despises and rejects and leaves him, and then he kindly pursues her. He goes after her. That is a Hosea theme. That's why it says Hosea theme. Theme. And so then I have the situation where for five days or so, almost five days, he is trying to get her to return with him, and he is able to do that, and then they're on their way back, and, and they're at night, and, and the servant says, we should stay in Jerusalem. It's actually the place of the Jebusites, Jebus, but the, uh, the servant wants to stay there, and the pre- priest master, uh, the Levite, says, no, he rejects staying in Jebus, which is also Jerusalem, as you know. It is uh, Jebus before Jerusalem, and that, of course, is Jehovah Jireh Salam. God provides peace. Some people say, well, there's evidence there that the Jebusites founded Jerusalem. No. Who founded Jerusalem? Melchizedek did. He was the first king-priest of Jerusalem. And by the way, you can't be a king-priest. That's a mistake that Saul made. But Melchizedek is a king-priest, so that makes him who? That makes him Christ himself. And Jerusalem, Jehovah Jireh Salam, God provides peace, is the place where Abraham took Isaac up the mountain, right? There's a picture of God going up the mountain with himself, with father, son, if you want to understand it that way. But the Levite refuses to say to stay in Jerusalem, and instead he goes into the court of Gebeah at night, and there's an old man who takes him to his house, and there's a virgin daughter there as well, and the house is surrounded by the sons of Belial. That's item number 10, so I should say that every now and then. 
uh, so that people can follow along. Let me just repeat it. In those days, no king. That's one. Number two, Levite priest master. Number three, woman wife who despises and rejects and leaves. Number four, the kindly pursuit of her, the Hosea theme. Number five, the servant wanting to stay in Jerusalem. Number six, the Levite refusing. Number seven, they go on to the court of Jebeah, Gebeah, in Benjamite territory. There's an old man who comes. Number eight, he has a virgin daughter. Now we're at ten, the sons of Belial which means the sons of Satan, they gather and they surround the house. And this is a repeat again of what? Sodom. That's why I put Sodom. The old man, Sodom. The virgin daughter, Sodom. The sons of Belial, Sodom. So Sodom resurrects, if you will. It is, it is ingrained in this story as well. So when you study Sodom, what should you do? You should study Judges 19. Put the two of them together and what will you have? You'll understand what happened in Sodom. You'll have a fuller understanding of it. And they had the, they gathered around, they had the intent to kill the Jewish priest. And instead the virgin is offered. And they reject the virgin. But eventually they accept the substitution of the wife. That's item 13. And I have the death of the wife, or the death of the woman. She dies on the doorstep. And then there's this incredible description that no such deed had been done or seen since Israel left Egypt. This was an incredible evil act. And so if you think that it was something just a typical murder of a woman in a dark place at night by a gang, that can't be true because that's not how the language describes it. Now, 16, the priest, once he realizes his wife is dead, he, he cuts her into, he cuts his murdered wife into 12 pieces of evidence. And 17, distributes the pieces to the 12 tribes of Israel. And all of Israel, as soon as they got their piece of evidence, they decide this is great wickedness. We must rise up as one to confront it. That's 18, item 18. All of them do that except Benjamin. 19. And 20, the evil would be removed from the land, and Benjamin would fight on the side of evil. And there becomes your great question. What makes Benjamin fight on the side of evil? And 21, the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. So it starts out by saying there was no king in those days, no king. But then the Ark of the Covenant was there in those days. And so you see the two of them in opposition Item 22, God says three things. Once the armies have gathered and the, and the war is be, to begin, God says three things. He says Judah first. He says that on day one when they ask who should go up first to fight. Judah should go first. Then he says go up against him on day two. And then he says go up to, for tomorrow. I will deliver them into your hand day three. And I underline deliver because I want you to know that there is I'm going over to the board. I hope this mic picks me up for the internet, folks. There is a deliver theme in Scripture. You need to know there's a deliver theme. God delivers and somebody else delivers. You need to know about delivering. It's very important to understand that Judas delivers Christ. He is not Judas the betrayer. He is Judas the deliverer. And he delivers Christ 
to Israel. And that's what that's about. So where am I? But know that those three things God says during this war that's going to go. Obviously, Judah is slaughtered on the first day. They are slaughtered again on the second day. Israel is. And then they are, they, they go to God and they ask, are we even supposed to be in this fight? But after three days, item 23, the sons of Satan are defeated. Let me repeat that. After three days, Satan is defeated and the wickedness removed. And that is obvious what that is. You can find Christ there, I hope. We'll get to that in a minute. In item 24, the Benjamites are almost void because there's only 600 of them left. And, and again, this Sodom connection. This is probably start the appendices number 25. Know that in this story there's a Sodom connection. There's also a Genesis 6 connection. I cannot have a Sodom connection without a Genesis 6 connection. And know that Leviticus 17, uh, 10 through 11, which talks about life in the blood and not drinking blood along with Leviticus 7, uh, which is item 28, 26 through 27. So item 28, Leviticus 7, 26 through 27. Between the two of them, uh, uh, item 27 and item 28, I have blood mentioned. I have what's in the blood, what's important about the blood, why you don't drink the blood, the prohibitions against drinking and uh, blood. Eating the flesh. Item 29, I have an explanation of all of this in some part. I have Mark 13, 17, which says, During the tribulation, woe be the pregnant Jewish woman. And then Hosea, we would expect Hosea, wouldn't we? Hosea explains why there's a woe for the Jewish pregnant woman. Because Hosea 13, 16, item 30 on the list, tells you, that the babies are ripped out of the pregnant Jewish women during the tribulation. What's the obvious question? Why are they doing that? And what's the obvious answer? For the same reason they did it in Judges 19 and in Sodom. Same reasons they did it in Genesis 6. So, Hosea 10.9 and Hosea 9.9 talk about the evil that is, that is Gebeah, how, how the evil there is the paradigm for wickedness, if you will. That's a, the highest level of evil you could get. And that makes it equivalent to Sodom. Why do we care about Sodom? Because it's coming back, boys and girls. That's why. Then Ezekiel 16, 48 through 49, I put on the list at 31, item 31, because it explains what Sodom was trying to do, what they had accomplished. Uh, they had accomplished everything with regard to defeating the curse except for extending life, which they were very close to accomplishing, I believe. Now, now we're into the next chapter. We're out of uh, Judges 19. We're into Judges 20 at item 32. Um, select men. And a fierce battle. In other words, we covered this war last week where uh, uh, the Benjamites, they couldn't be beaten. They had 700 guys that just slaughtered Judah and then slaughtered the next group that came up the next day. No, they were, they were just massacring them. And so the plan was from Israel was to select a group of men, a large group of men, 
and then to pretend like they were still continuing to retreat, like they did the first two days, draw Benjamin out. And Benjamin went out. Why would they go out? All they had to do was sit behind the walls and let the guys they had just slaughter them. They could have sat down and watched cable TV and ate donuts. But they didn't. They rushed out to kill the army of Israel as it pretended to panic and retreat. Why would the Benjamites do that? That's another very important question. They had it made. Just sit there. They couldn't be there. No siege was working. They were winning. I can't resist. Winning. What would make them go out and follow this, and, and, and follow this retreating army? But they did. And the select men come in behind them. And it says this very important item 34, a key to this whole story is the Benjamites did not know disaster was upon them. They rushed out believing they were going to win this battle. They were positive. They were eager. They were, they anticipated it's going to be just like day one. Day three is going to be just like day one and day two. We're going to slaughter these guys, cut them all to pieces. And they were trapped and they were ambushed and they did not know disaster was upon them. It says very clearly that God did this. And that's important. Everybody knew that God did something in this battle. And I said last week, think about what the counterfeit is for a second. I got 700 guys that never miss when they throw rocks. They throw rocks with both hands. They kill people from a long distance and they don't miss. Who does that sound like? That's a counterfeit of who? That's a, that is a counterfeit of something God can do, that God does. And God, God will continue to do. He'll do it in Ezekiel 38, probably in the next few years, if not weeks. That'll be really cool if it happens fast. Pop popcorn. Watch Ezekiel 38. Will that change everything? Do you realize how quickly your life could change if Ezekiel 38 starts on Monday? How your life is completely different. Nothing about it is the same if that war comes. And as I said a few weeks ago, we have three quarters of the signs of that war already in place. I'm fascinated. I'm watching TV every now and then, and I find people that have stolen my sermon. Okay, they didn't. But they're, they're putting Turkey and Iran and Russia together. Have you ever seen people on television going, do you know that Turkey and Iran and Russia are now in a in an alliance, and that is an Ezekiel 38 reference for the first time in history? Well, they're right. Good for them. So anyway, they did not know disaster was upon them, and the Lord defeated them. So that tells you that those select men could not have beaten those sons of Belial without God directly interfering. Just like he will in Ezekiel 38, right? Just like he will in Revelation 19. And so this ambush occurs now where they pretended to recede. These guys go in. They attack the city. They kill the sons of Belial. Great cloud of smoke comes up. They light this fire. So the Benjamites and the Israelis that they are fighting now, they're both Israelis, but the, the army of Israel then sees that cloud of smoke and they know that the sons of Belial are dead. And they also are mostly dead. We'll talk about if any of them survived. Did any of them survive? Apparently they did. How many? 
But a, a couple, for sure. In any event, the Benjamites now know when they saw that signal that disaster had come And they are slaughtered, so many are slaughtered, thousands are slaughtered, and there's only 600 of them left. And then after they got, they ran into the rock. They ran to the rock to hide. Is that a good idea? Yes, it is. Benjamites run to the rock and and hide. And then so Israel can't get them. And so what does Israel do instead? It goes back and kills all of the women and all of the children, all of the animals, and they burn all of the cities. Okay, there's your list. That's your incomplete, 40 elements of the incomplete, essential, so far list. And I realize that it can be overwhelming trying to discover and trying to determine how all of that fits together to reveal what? All of that fits together to reveal something. You put them all together and what do you get? You get Jesus Christ. That's what you're supposed to do. You're commanded to do it. It's a direct order. Let me ruin your life. What do I mean by that? That means that what I'm about to say to you, you're going to have to answer it. I do this all the time. Knowing full well the implications of it. There's your list. You are commanded to find Jesus Christ. Will you do it? See, every one of you have done something now. What have you done? You've all answered it. Will you do it? If you don't do it, what's happening at your trial? That's right, big, big time beating. Good luck with that. Do you get to blame me? No more. I did my job. I read Ezekiel. All I got to do is tell you, I'm home free. I know that. Every time I ask people, Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Everyone who reads that passage in Scripture does what? Answers it. Yes or no? Everyone. Okay. And I realize that it can be overwhelming, as I just finished saying, trying to discover and determine how they all fit together to reveal a portrait of Jesus Christ. It's an actual, literal, real, historical event. And and people, these are real people who did and said these things. There really was a guy who had his wife murdered and he cut her up into 12 pieces and he sent that evidence all throughout the land of Israel. That really happened. He's an actual guy. He, it was all said and done by these, these people, these very things. But also hidden within it is a testifying of the person and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. God in the flesh, the great I am. He's hidden in here and we are commanded, we're ordered to find him, John 5.39. So overwhelming or not, it's a matter of obedience. Do you obey or not? It's a direct order. Now, some of the treasures or the precious stones, whatever you want to call them, as we've already covered, are on the surface. All you got to do is reach down and pick them up. You don't even have to dig. There they are. They're right there. Grab one. The sons of Satan defeated after three days. Satan defeated after three days. That's clearly and obviously a a reference to the crucifixion of Christ. After three days, Satan was defeated, right? On the cross. You've sang the songs. You've heard the sermons. 
Now the rushing out into an open field, not knowing that disaster would come upon them. Who, where in the Bible, who rushes out into an open field to kill the firstborn, right? Because Israel is called the firstborn of God. Who else is called the firstborn? Who rushes out into an open field to think that they're going to kill the firstborn of God, not knowing the disaster is about to come upon them? Ever confident, eager, they're attacking God, they're delusional, they're insane, and disaster comes upon them quickly and suddenly. Who is that? And then they run in panic, but it's too late. It is the end of the wicked ones. Where am I now in Scripture? I'm in Revelation 19. That's Christ portrayed there. He's just unseen here. But it tells you what he will do in Revelation 19. The, the Antichrist will have the... I mean, let me, I'll say that in a second. Let me just keep going so I don't spoil that. But hopefully you see Jesus Christ in Armageddon. The army gathered at Armageddon. What do they think they're going to do? They're going to kill God. We're waiting. Ha! He'll be here in a couple of minutes. We'll kill him. Yay, us. Go, go, little specks of dust. Go. We will kill God. When he shows, not a problem. Who thinks like that? But also, I want you to see the crucifixion week here, too, because that is very, very immersed in Judges 19. Disaster came upon Satan and Judas there as well. They did not anticipate, I believe, my opinion. I think I'm right. I think I've proven this in my series on Judas, on the eighth mystery. It's on sermonaudio.com for those of you who listen on Podbean and iTunes. But they did not anticipate God allowing himself to be led away. They didn't anticipate that. After Judas delivered him, delivered him, delivered him, didn't betray him. You can't betray omniscient God. That doesn't make logical sense. So the word literally is delivered and it's translated. You can translate it betrayed, but it doesn't fit the context, nor does it fit the typology from the Old Testament, by the way. But Judas delivered him to the Pharisees. And what is Christ in that particular scene in Gethsemane? He is what? What is he? He's standing there. What is he? He is surrounded, isn't he? He's surrounded. He's surrounded at Gethsemane. And who's surrounding him? The literal, actual son of Belial himself. With the sons of Belial. So I have the son of Belial and the sons of Belial. And disaster came there as well for Satan. The I have delivered an innocent man is evidence of that. That's a statement of Judas as an admission of defeat and panic. Their plan had been, uh, well, of course it would. They're going up against omniscient God. Their plan had failed and disaster had come upon them. And so the crucifixion week is throughout Judges 19, 20, and 21. Anyway, got to push on very fast uh, on ahead to get to the hard part. So here we go. All of that to get you to the hard part. So far, everything's been easy. Judges 20. So we'll all read it together. I'll start at 47. I'll go really fast. Here is where the solution is. Here is where the portrait of Christ comes flying off the pages. 
Verse 47 of, 20, of Judges 20. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimon and stayed there at the rock for four months. Isn't that great? Good for them. And the men of Israel turned back against the children of Benjamin and struck them down with the edge of the sword from every city, men and beasts, all who were found. So they find them all? Or did they just kill all they found? They killed all they found for sure. They also set fire to all the cities they came to. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah. When they got together, they had their piece of the wife, right? And they came to Mizpah. They were all there. They all rose up united and said, We've got to remove this incredible evil that happened at Gebeah. We've got to remove these seven or 700 sons of Belial. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah, saying, None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. So that becomes very important. I'm moving over here. Oath. The oath is important. I have an oath. None of us will give his daughters. We're oathing that. We can't give a daughter. Why'd they pick that? Why not? None of us can give a son. What's the purpose of the oath? They, they knew what they were going to do, didn't they? They all had an oath. None of us will give a daughter. What's that mean? The evil will be removed. One way or the other. One way we're going to remove the evil. We're not going to give daughters. They're not going to have Jewish wives. They're not going to be able to do what? Okay, none of us shall give his, that's an oath. And by the way, can you break the oath? You can't break the oath. This is an oath before God or to God or with God, if you will. None of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. Then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They just wiped out, they just wiped out. A whole tribe down to 600 guys. They've removed the evil and now they're weeping over it. That should get your attention. And they wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? So, it would, it, by the way, are we going to have one tribe? Don't we have 600 of them left? Can't they escape? They can't escape. And what's their, how's their wives and children doing right now? They're all dead. Cities are burned. And, they're, and now the victors, if you will, are weeping bitterly. Do you notice this weeping stuff? It keeps happening. They keep weeping. They wept after the first day. They wept after the second day. Now they're weeping after the third day. God says three things. They weep three times. Think that's a coincidence? Oh, Lord of God of Israel, why has this come to pass? That seems like a strange question to me. So it was on the next morning. They should know why it came to pass, huh? They participated in it coming to pass. They're the ones that are burning the cities and killing all the women, and they got the guys pinned again in the rock. There's only 600 of them, and they're not going to give any daughters to them. So they should know. Are they blaming God for this? This is God's fault. So it was on the next morning that, that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. It's, what are they doing? 
What are they trying to do? They don't like something. What is it, what is it they don't like? They don't want to lose a tribe. They're, they're, they're not. This is a problem. I've got to know. How do I save this tribe? I don't want this tribe to die. But I got an oath. If I keep the oath, what happens to the tribe? The tribe's gone. How do I get around the oath? How do you get around the oath? So the next, the rest of the chapter is about what? How do they get around the oath? How do they do it? I'm going to have to speed up. I'm not going to be able to read it much, so we'll just go a few more. So it was on the next morning the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, Who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come? See what they're trying to do? Trying to get around the oath. Who did not come up with the assembly to the Lord. Hey, there's some people in Israel that didn't come up. What are we going to do to that people? It's Jabesh. Gilead. Okay? There's a city. They didn't come up. What do we get to do now? Hey, here's an idea. Let's go kill them all. That's going to help. And we're going to take 400 virgin daughters and we're going to walk them over there to the 600 men. That's what they did. What are they trying to do? They're trying to save Benjamin. They're trying to get around this oath. We didn't give daughters. We killed all those people and took their daughters. And they didn't come up to Mizpah. And they didn't give an oath. They never showed up. Let's kill them. Burner cities, great, great idea. Because they got to deal with this oath. That didn't work though, because they only got 400. Got to have 200 more, so what do we do now? Well, fortunately, we have a feast day. We have a feast day coming. And we got a bunch of dancing women. And what we're going to do is we're going to tell, uh, we're going to tell Benjamin, you guys hide in the bushes. And when the uh, women are dancing, the young virgin women, what, what kind of women? When the women are out there dancing, these virgin girls from Shiloh, from peace, right? Shiloh means peace. Women of peace at their yearly feast because there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. There must be an inheritance. You must have an inheritance. Look at that. Every man to his inheritance. You must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin. When I say there must be an inheritance, what am I saying? On one hand, I have an oath that says all of Benjamin must die. On the other hand, I have something that says there must be what for Benjamin? All Benjamin must die. Benjamin must be what? Saved. Inheritance is salvation. So I have bang, don't I? How do I solve it? I must have salvation for Benjamin, but all Benjamin must die. And so how do I solve it? I wipe out a city. And by the way, what city do you think is it that is surrounded by the guy that wants to cut out all their eyes? Same city. Jabesh. Gilead. Same city. And who do they turn to to save them? They turn to Saul, a Benjamite from Gebeah. Now, how about that for full, full a Paul Harvey moment? The city that gets wiped out is saved by a descendant of the ones 
that caused them to get wiped out, if you will. And they're so devoted to Saul that when he dies, they go get Saul's bones and they give him a burial. And then David goes and gets those bones and moves them again. And this this story becomes more complicated. But I want you to see this. What is the solution to the oath and salvation? Now, obviously, I've thrown in a few clues. I've mixed in other passages. I, I've thrown in uh, the most obvious of the obvious. I put in Genesis 6 here, right? Because no, the no daughter oath is the opposite of Genesis 6. Do you see that? What happened in Genesis 6? The sons of, the sons of God saw the daughters of men and they, those daughters were taken, but they were also given. I'll make that case as time goes on because man is responsible there. And wickedness continues everywhere. Great wickedness because of the givings of daughters. And now we're not going to give daughters. So anyway, Let's all go back to the beginning. A woman rejects and despises her priest, master, Jewish husband, and she leaves, and he pursues her with kindness, and he's surrounded by evil that intends to kill him, that wishes for his death. And by the way, you can read the bumper stickers, right? Bumper stickers that say, We wish the priest, master, Jewish carpenter... I threw in carpenter. We wish that the priest, master, Jewish is dead... Or maybe another bumper sticker, maybe. God is dead. We try that. Anyway, we have great sin. We have Sodom-like sin. We have Genesis 6 sin. The Jewish priest master will assemble an army by giving out the evidence. The sin, the sin will be removed. It will be separated out after three days. But then there's great weeping, tremendous weeping. Three weepings. Judah is slaughtered. Jews killed by the sons of Belial in great numbers. But then there's the final battle, right? The Lord defeats the wicked before Israel. That's what it says, Judges 20.35. The Lord defeats the wicked before Israel. And now we have this remnant that exists, only 600, and they must be saved. And so how do we save them? We got this oath, and they must be saved. So we have a feast. We have dancing. We have virgins taken. Okay, if they take a virgin, what is that, by the way? What what am I talking about? That's a what? That's a marriage. Not exactly a... uh, That's a forced marriage, but it's still marriage. So, the oath is solved by that. This ends with a marriage, a feast, and salvation. We should not be surprised by that, huh? And next week we'll go in, we'll finish it, we'll do our best. You can read ahead, read 1 Samuel 11, 1 Samuel 31, and 2 Samuel 21, 13 through 14. Let's rise and be dismissed.